uh, get victory over sin and experience freedom. We want to connect those people to Jesus for life change. We want to connect people to Jesus for life change. They need to go to the next level in their spiritual life because you don't stay at the same place. He's continuing to do a good work in you. And so we want to connect people that have been walking with Jesus for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. We want to connect them to Jesus Christ. There's another way to say connect people to Jesus for life change. It's kind of churchy. It's make disciples. At the core of who we are as a church, that's what we want to do. And if you're a member of this church, that's really your mission statement too, that you exist. The reason why you're still here is to connect people to Jesus for life change. In fact, Jesus gives us a verse of scripture that tells us why. When you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, when you shifted your trust from yourself, from being a good person, from your religion, to Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross, there's a reason why he didn't zap you to heaven immediately. He still has a reason for you to be here and not be at a place where there's no sickness and no pain and no suffering and no sin. He still wants you here because he has a mission for you. There's a core verse that really talks about that. We call it the Great Commission oftentimes in Matthew chapter 28, which is really foundational to this whole series. It's not the verse that we're going to look at today to preach, but it's foundational for the whole thing, so I'll just read it to you. We'll start reading in verse 18. You could start reading in verse 16, different spots. But Jesus, after he's crucified on the cross, he raises from the dead, then he speaks to his disciples, and he gives them a mission to live on while they're still here. He's going to go to heaven. He's going to leave them here. So if I'm them, I'm going, I want to go with you. But he's saying, I still have a plan for you here. So then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. That's a lot of authority, by the way. We won't get into tearing this verse apart, but I mean, maybe you manage like three or four people at your office. Jesus got more authority than that. He's got all the authority in heaven. The angels are declaring glory, glory, glory to God. Lord, with you, the one who was and is and is to come. He's got all the authority in that place. And he's got all the authority in this place. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This guy's got a lot of power. So what does he do with that power? He says, therefore, go. He sends his disciples out and make disciples of all nations. Not just the people in your office, not just the people in your neighborhood, but in RDU and in Panama, like the team we commissioned at the beginning of the service, and Madagascar and Japan and in Durham and Holly Springs, wherever you're at, as you go, make disciples. What do you do? You connect them to Jesus, and then when they place their faith in Jesus, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you're done. Right? Then it's going to be, get them into the kingdom. That's the goal. Just get them in. Then he says what to do after that. He says, in teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so there's a teaching ministry after that. So you, Jesus had a teaching ministry. He did miracles. He fed people, but it was to reveal the Father. He was a revealing of the Father. He was teaching people. And so he goes and he teaches. What does he teach him? He doesn't just teach information. Notice what it says. Teaching them to obey everything. Obey everything I've commanded you. And surely you don't do this all by yourself because it's a work that only I can really do. I am with you. The guy with all the authority and all the power, I am with you always until I come back or until you die. And so what is it we're supposed to do? We're supposed to teach people. Notice it doesn't just say information. Get the things I've commanded into their minds. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So here's a question. Do you know everything Jesus commanded? Because if we don't actually do this stuff, then guess what connecting people to Jesus for life change is? It's just rhetoric. It's just words. And so if we're just trying to get people into the kingdom too, we're not making disciples. And so we challenge every member of our church to have at least one lost person, one person who's without hope and without God. They're trying to bring into the kingdom. They're trying to introduce to Jesus Christ. But then what happens after that point? Then you teach them, but you're not just telling them information. You're teaching them the way you live, the things that you say, to obey. So then are you obeying? 
And how can you obey if you don't even know? So do you know all the commands? We gave out, we give, uh, we do groups at our church. Those of you maybe new, you might not know that. We call them e-groups. And our embrace groups every week get together and talk about the sermon. We give a study that goes along with the sermon. We oftentimes give away additional resources to help people study. And uh, even if you're not in an e-group, if you'd like to receive that study, you can sign up in your connection card. Just tell us you want the study. Um, this week, we gave away a free book in there. As well. In addition to that, there was a list of all the commands of Jesus. And on the list that we had that was compiled, different lists have different numbers, but there were over 300 commands of Jesus. I believe that list had 335 commands of Jesus. Do you know all 335 commands of Jesus? If you don't, then how can you obey them? was in a meeting, uh, I think it was two or three months ago, with our elder team and our leadership team. Leadership team's a team that comes alongside the elders and, and helps serve in, in that capacity and leadership of our church. And One of the guys in the meeting, his name's Dan Parlin. Dan Parlin was talking about this verse. We were talking about discipleship as a whole and how are we doing as a church and what can we do better to try and be better at making disciples. And Dan said that he was reading this verse in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, and he came to that part where it says, teach them to be everything I commanded you. And he thought to himself, I don't think I even know what all the commands are of Jesus. Now, if you don't know Dan, Dan's dad's a pastor. Uh, he had to go to church when he was a kid, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and they had bonus church on Wednesday night. So they even had that. And so he'd been to a lot of church services, went to Christian school, had chapels. He studies his Bible like a growing Christian does on a daily basis. And he said, I'm reading through this. And I'm thinking, do I know all the commands of Jesus? And so what he started to do in what he calls his devotional life, which is a time just him and the Lord to connect where he reads the Bible. If you're a growing Christian, you should be doing that. And he, uh, he starts reading through the Gospels and writing down everywhere there's a command. And then how does it apply to his life? What does it mean to him? Well, what should change? Or what does he do? Or is it affirming? Is it encouraging? And so he's studying, reading stuff that goes along with that. And he goes through all these commands. And I thought, that'd be great for us as a church. To go through the commands of Jesus? If we're going to make disciples, we at least should know what he tells us to do ourselves, much less teach to other people. And so that's what we're going to do this summer. We're not going to cover 335 commands, though. I had thought for a moment uh, about just reading to you all 300 commands. or the three, I thought it would be like a world record, 335-point sermon. We're around 120. I figured you'd probably be like, what's going on? What are we doing today? And so we're not going to do all 300 commands in this series. There's 14 weeks this summer. And Lord willing, we'll cover 14 commands. If the Lord leads that we'll spend more time on one command, we keep coming back to it, then we will. Uh, but we'll hit about 14 commands. Hopefully, it spurs you on in your own devotions or your study of the scriptures to go through the Gospels and see what does Jesus actually say. So we call it red letters because of the actual things that came from the lips of Jesus Christ. And so they're written in red in your Bibles. And so we're just playing off of that. There's nothing more inspired about those letters than the other words that are in the scriptures, but it points out to us the ones that Jesus is saying. And he said that we're supposed to teach to obey everything he commanded. So what did he command? And today we're going to look at the very first book in the New Testament, Matthew, the first gospel, and the very first words that come from Jesus in his public ministry. And it's the first command that he gives in Matthew chapter 4. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're really just going to look at one verse today, verse 17. And so if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, or you version, whatever you use, if you go ahead and get there. But because we're just looking at one verse, that can be dangerous, because you can make the Bible say whatever you want. So let me tell you what's been happening in the context leading up to this verse. In the book of Matthew, the very beginning, Matthew tells us about the miraculous birth of Jesus that was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet hundreds of years, six, seven, eight hundred years prior to Jesus being born. Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and the virgin will be with child. That's weird. A virgin is going to give birth. How does that even happen? Well, it happens, and Matthew chapter 1 tells us about it, this unique birth of Jesus. So Jesus is unique. Who is he? 
We're trying to figure that out. And so Matthew keeps telling us how Jesus fulfills the prophecies about the Messiah, about the Savior of the world that's come into the world. And what we see happen right before our passage is there's a guy named John, John the Baptist, who's preaching repentance in the wilderness. He dresses funny. He's got crazy hair. He tells everybody, you're sinners. You need to turn to God. And he baptizes them. So John the Baptist is not called Baptist because of the kind of church he goes to. It's not because he tells people to repent. It's because he's baptizing people, dunking them under the water as a symbol that they've turned to God. And Jesus comes to him and says, I need to be baptized. Well, Jesus has never sinned. John the Baptist says, no, you need to baptize me. And they get in this funny little argument that you can read about on your own. No, you baptize me. No, you baptize me. And I wonder how that actually sounded to everybody when I was out there. And uh, then Jesus gets baptized. And then the Holy Spirit comes on him, anointing him for the ministry that he has. And then the Father from heaven, because he doesn't have an earthly father. God speaks audibly. says, this is my son, to whom I am well pleased. And affirms him for the ministry he's going to have. And then the Spirit leads him into the desert for 40 days of not eating anything and being tempted by Satan. And you don't eat for 40 days. And then Satan tempts him, guess what, with food. Tempts him to avoid the cross, to have the glory without the cross. And he gets victory over Satan, victory over this earth. And the only thing he doesn't have victory over yet is death, and that's coming. But before that, he's going to have this earthly ministry. And that's what Matthew starts to tell us about here. In verse 12, after the temptation of Jesus, I'll start reading in verse 12, but we'll focus on number 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, that's John the Baptist, the guy who baptized him, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. So he's in Nazareth. Some stuff happened here that John tells us about. We'll talk about that a little bit later. He went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 9, hundreds of years earlier. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so this isn't just Jews. This is a bunch of people from all different nations. So we're tying together the gospel, the great commission he gives here. The people living in darkness, they've seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He's introducing the light of the world, Jesus Christ. That's the way Matthew does it. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And then we get his message. And here's what he preaches, and he preaches it, preaches it repeatedly. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus, first message, the message he preaches, you know, we see Jesus throughout the gospel, says Jesus was teaching and preaching. He's preaching repentance. He's confronting sin. It's the same, it's in fact, it's the exact same wording that's used in Matthew chapter 3, or verse 2, of the message that John the Baptist preaches. Now, some people will be surprised to hear that Jesus was preaching a message of repentance. Because that's like a John the Baptist type message. Like that's like what prophets and guys who wear crazy clothes and have crazy hair. That's what they preach. Repent! Or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, some Old Testament prophet. That's who confronts sin. But many of us have a picture of Jesus that he's this meek and mild rabbi who teaches truths unlike anyone's ever taught before. But he's really just a man of love and grace and mercy so we don't have a category for him preaching repentance. And so some people are surprised to see that his first words on his lips in the Gospel of Matthew, in the first Gospel in the Bible, his first message is repent. Because many of us have an overly sentimentalized version of Jesus that we worship. And if it's not you, maybe that's not you, maybe you think, no, I knew that. I knew this was the first message and you've studied the Bible and you've been around church. But go and survey people that don't go to church and ask them these two questions. What do you think of religion or church and what do you think of Jesus? If you go ask them about religion, the response will be something bad. What do you think of religion? Oh, that's bad. Or hypocrites, hate mongers, whatever, different thing. What do you think of Jesus? Oh, he's cool. 
And Jesus is cool. Still in our society, it's okay. Jesus is cool, but religion's bad. It's interesting since Jesus started the church. (laughs) Also interesting since he started a religion. But they think Jesus is great because they don't have an accurate picture of Jesus. The picture of Jesus that most people have is that he's he's a rabbi that's meek and mild, sentimental, and he doesn't want you to sin. But he's more like the coach that comes and puts his arm around you in a football game. Like, oh, it's going to be okay. We'll get the next play. Not the one that grabs your face mask. Hey, cut it out. Talk about that in practice. Keep jumping off sides. He's like, oh, you'll get it next time. And so Jesus is more like the version of, I really wish you wouldn't lie and cheat, steal. But I understand. It's okay. It's all grace, grace. God, Barney, I love you. It's kind of the version of Jesus that we have. And if that's your version of Jesus, let me tell you something. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. That is Jesus that you, if that's the Jesus you were singing to when we were singing the name of Jesus, we were singing songs, if that's the Jesus you think about when you pray, uh, let me tell you, that's not the Jesus that walked this earth. That is a Jesus that you have created. If it's a Jesus that you've created, what does that make you? God. Because you've created your God. You are the creator of God. You are God. But when we come to the Jesus of the Bible, he's preaching repentance continually. He preaches it here at the very beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. He preaches it throughout his ministry. He tells his disciples to preach it throughout his ministry. He preaches it at the end of his ministry. He tells his disciples to preach it when he leaves this earth. After he leaves this earth and he ascends into heaven, he's still preaching repentance. It's interesting. Let me take you on a journey through a few verses. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he starts preaching it. Then later, in the midst of his ministry, we'll go to about the middle of the book of Matthew, Matthew 11. He talks to this town where he's created or uh, done a bunch of miracles. It says, then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. He sends his disciples out two by two to go and do ministry. In Mark chapter 6, look at what he says to them. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And they went out and they preached that people should repent. I wonder where they got that message, Jesus. And then at the end of his ministry, Luke gives us a version of the Great Commission in which he phrases it like this. Luke says that he told them Jesus. And it's interesting because Luke, and Luke is where he has the story of the Emmaus Road. You can go look that up where Jesus explains how the whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus. All those messages of repentance all the falling and all the going away and breaking the law it all points to jesus in luke chapter 24 verses 46 to 47 he jesus told them this is what is written the christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at jerusalem and guess who will preach it his disciples read the book of acts first message it's about repentance and some churches get started a church in ephesus gets started in fact multiple churches get started that then get talked about in the book of revelation what happens in the book of acts is that after jesus gives the commission he he ascends into heaven. So you'd think like he's done, right? Like that's retirement for Jesus. Like he's just out there kind of waiting for us to do our thing. And he, no. So some of these churches get started and they start really well, but then they get off track. And so in the book of Revelation, you see three different churches. He tells them to repent. One of them is the church at Ephesus. Pastor Jab mentioned a verse from the book of Ephesus. This would be the kids of the people from the book of Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus, these are red letters in your Bible, by the way, remember the height from which you've fallen repent. So even from heaven, he's telling them, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, there are consequences. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. Your church will become ineffective. Has that happened to any churches you've been to? Don't say. Turn. Country, church, individual. 
This is the message of Jesus and why. He's preaching at the beginning of his ministry. He's preaching it throughout his ministry. He preaches at the end of his earthly ministry. And then even after he leaves this earth, he's still preaching this message of repentance. Sounds like it's pretty important. Why is he preaching it? Well, back to our verse today. Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 tells us at least the very first reason why repentance is so important. Because repentance is required for entrance into the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance is required. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, without repentance. Repentance is required for entrance into God's kingdom. It's the starting point. It's the very begin- beginning. What is he talking about? He says kingdom of heaven. Scholars talk a whole bunch about the difference between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. He's using language that's sensitive to the Jews because Matthew's writing primarily to Jews. Jews didn't think you should say the name God, write the name God. So heaven's synonym for God. What is the kingdom of God? It's a kingdom that happens where God rules and he reigns. He is the king we sang about today. He is the leader. He is the ruler. And where is it at? Well, the, the theologians talk about the already and the not yet. The already is what's already happened. The not yet is what's going to happen. The already, Jesus inaugurates, begins, starts his kingdom when he comes to earth the first time right here. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's happening now because I'm here. And what happens when Jesus inaugurates his kingdom is he comes, he dies on the cross, he provides forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, freedom from sin here on earth. That's the already. The not yet is he's going to come back a second time and he's going to bring judgment. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness of sins. Repentance is necessary to deal with the judgment. The already and the not yet, God's kingdom and so where God's kingdom is now, it's in the hearts of believers of Jesus Christ who bow their knee to him and ask him to be Lord of their lives. One day it will be over the entire earth when he comes back. The already, the not yet. And what is required in order to enter that kingdom? Repentance. So what is repentance? Well, because some of you have probably been to church before, you study your Bible on your own, you've heard different sermons on repentance, I want to be real clear about what repentance is not before I give you a definition of what repentance is. So repentance is not multiple things. I'm going to give you at least three of them. Repentance is not merely just changing your mind. What some people do when they teach about repentance, they take the Greek word for repentance, even the Greek word that's used here in verse 17, and it's two, two words really put together, meta noeo. Noeo is talking about your mind and uh, the way that your mind works. And meta, oftentimes used in context, talking about change. And so people will say that repentance is meta noeo, it's change your mind. And so if you need to think differently about sin, then that is repentance. That is not repentance. It's an overly academic thought process about repentance. Let me tell you something. If we stay theoretical and we stay just in our minds about repentances, no one would ever sin. Because sin is stupid. Write that down. That's a good, that's a good line. <laughs> sin is stupid. What was the message about today? Pastor said sin's stupid. Oh, okay, sounds consistent. Sin is stupid. In our minds, we all know sin is dumb. Think about it. What is your, whatever your temptation is, whatever it, overeating, lust, you know, pride, self-exaltation, whatever your thing is, think about that, or an apple, if we're going to use the you know, Genesis 3 deal, or Right relationship and communion and intimacy with the almighty creator who knows what's best for you and wants what's best for you. Or an apple. It's not even a chocolate apple. I mean, come on. And even if it was chocolate apple or the almighty, and even if it's your lust, and even if it's a career choices, and even if it's a, or God, like sin is stupid. Not to mention just pragmatically all the consequences of it that come in our lives. But if we, we, we can know sin is stupid and we still do it. And so if you don't think that's true, just go to someone you know that has a sin habit and tell them, like, whatever, we all have different ones. And so go to somebody, if somebody's an alcoholic, go to them and say, hey, drinking's bad for you. 
Will they stop drinking because they know that it's bad for them? No, because there's a desire issue there. Go to someone who has an anger issue and say, hey, when you get angry, you isolate yourself from other people. It's damaging to relationships. No one wants to be around you. It's really uncomfortable, and it's probably not good for you internally either. So you probably shouldn't do that. Then leave and cut them off in the parking lot. But I know I shouldn't. I just need to change my mind. No, you know. You know the information. Somebody, if porn, if porn's their thing. So that's a huge deal. Stats are overwhelming. We've shared them before. You go tell guys, hey, listen, porn, it's, you cause intimacy disorders from porn. And so secular studies will tell you that. Uh, it funds human trafficking. Even the websites you're not paying for are making money off of you being there, and you're funding human trafficking through doing this deal. And, and it's, not, it's just not good. You're objectifying one of the people that are created in an image of God. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Now I'll stop. No. See, Sin is stupid, but it's very tempting. I think it's interesting that Matthew puts the temptation of Jesus right before this message. And so it's not just theoretical, God up in heaven going, why do these humans keep doing this stuff? It's so dumb. They can have me, or they can have that, and they choose that. They choose creation over the creator. That's so foolish. How do they do that? Well, then Jesus comes. Hebrews tells us that he's tempted in every way as we're tempted. So any temptation you've experienced, Jesus has experienced. You've never been tempted in a way that Jesus doesn't know your temptation. But he never sinned. And so we see in verses 1 through 11 of Matthew chapter 4, him facing some of those very temptations. In fact, Hebrews tells us that he's resisted sin to the point, unlike any of us, he's lost blood over it. He resisted so hard, so hard. He knows that the temptations are great. And then he preaches this message of repent, turn from the sin. It's not just about changing your mind, though. And it's also not just about desires. Some people think that sin is just that we feel bad. If you feel guilty enough, that's real repentance. If you feel enough shame, that's real repentance. And then some psych, you know, get some psychology on there, and we'll talk about shame is bad. No, guilt and shame are not bad when they come from God. There's a godly sorrow. There's a godly shame. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. We don't have time to go there today. You want to learn more about repentance, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. You can read about some of that. But just having shame, just feeling bad. Maybe if you shed some tears, it'll be genuine repentance. And maybe you've seen before, televangelist, you know, he commits adultery, steals some money, and then he gets up, I'm sorry, big crocodile tears. And you're like, must be genuine, he's crying. That's not the sign. Let me tell you why. Our hearts are so deceptive, sometimes our feelings are wrong and sinful. The tears come because of consequences sometimes. Or because our pride is, I can't believe that I did that. You ever said that? That's pride, by the way. That's not repentance. You're actually sinning in your feeling bad about your sin. That's how sinful we are. I can't believe that I would do that or the consequences or that I got caught. So you can feel really guilty, really bad because you got caught or you don't want to face the consequences. Shame, sorrow. That's not, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is also not just you change your behavior. Hey, cut that out. It's bad. Stop doing it. Like a habit. Like, oh, I should stop eating so much chocolate. I should stop smoking. I should stop swearing. Whatever. I'll just stop doing it. Then we think that's repentance. No, there's a fruit of repentance, but repentance is internal and it changes. And so that's not, repentance is not just changing your mind. It's not just feeling bad and it's not just stopping. So what is it? I want to give you an illustration today of what repentance is. And so I've asked my daughter to help me out. Janie, Janie, can you come on up here? Janie is our third daughter. Janie, come on up here. And we did this one time. Hi, baby. Um, how old are you? Five. Five? Say hi to everybody. Hi. Hi, everybody. See, they're really out there. Even though the light's so bright, they're actually there. When they make noise, you can tell. Um, otherwise, sometimes you forget. But the, uh, 
we taught one time about repentance at the table. We won't get into why we were talking about this, and it wasn't Jeannie's fault. Uh, but we will, I, I read in a book about a pastor who taught his kids about this by having them do something. So I want to have you do something, and I need a volunteer. And so I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Wyatt, who helped us um, with the worship this morning, if you would just take some chocolate. Jeannie, do you like chocolate? Now, this is the kind of chocolate. This is the chocolate we use when we make s'mores. Do you like s'mores? We're going to pretend like chocolate is sin just for a moment. Eating too much chocolate might be sin, but sin, chocolate itself is not sin. I think this is a better analogy than if I used an apple. So we're going to go with this. No, you cannot. That's, that's right. It works. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give this to Mr. John, Mr. Wyatt over here. And I'm going to ask him just to go, can you go back like for about where the communion table ends at? And I'm going to make a deal with you, Janie. If you can get to Mr. John and that chocolate, before I say stop, you can have all the chocolate and you don't have to share any of it with your sisters. Does that sound like a good idea? Yes. Okay. But if I say stop before you get there, I need you to stop, and then I want you to obey everything I say after that, okay? Okay. Are you ready? On your mark? Get set? I didn't say go. Oh, no, 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 no. So it's genuinely tempting. We know that. Ready? Go. Stop. 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 Pull it backwards. <laughs> she didn't make it. She didn't make it. All right. Turn. Come back to me. Oh, you don't get any chocolate? Uh-uh. You can have some chocolate later. You did a great job. Thank you very much. So you can have it. Why? You can go ahead and eat the chocolate. Don't eat all of it at once. We'll give it to Janie. We'll get you some chocolate later, Janie. What Janie showed us is the, what the actions of repentance actually are. Because not only did she stop, she turned. So she turned away from sin. She turned back to her father. And not only she turned back to her father, but she came running to her father. What happens in genuine repentance is not that you just cut it out. Oh, the sin is bad. I better change my mind. I better think different about this. I feel really bad that I've been doing this. There's some consequences for this. But no, you stop and you turn away from the sin. You turn to God because you want the communion with your father. And so like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 who decides he's wasting his life. and He's going to go back home. You go back. So you can feel bad. Judas felt bad that he betrayed Jesus. The rich young ruler felt bad that he didn't get eternal life, but he didn't follow Jesus. What has to happen in repentance is there's a miracle that actually takes place in your heart. See, real repentance is a radical transformation where you turn from sin and turn to God. So we illustrated to you the actions Janie and I and John did this morning where you run towards it. We're going after something that we think is going to bring whatever, joy, happiness, satisfaction, delight in some moment, whatever it is, fill in the blank with your temptation. And you go after that, but then you come to this realization, well, stop, God calls you to stop. But then you also turn, not only turn from the sin, but you turn to God and you go back because you want him. Now, every illustration has a breakdown, every analogy does. I'll share with you the greatest weakness of the illustration I just gave you is this. Today, when I get home, my daughter still wants candy. And the miracle of repentance is that God changes your desires in your heart. And that's the real miracle that takes place with repentance. What Jesus is calling for. He begins his ministry commanding something that is impossible for you to do. Because you can't change your own heart. The best illustration I know of this in the Bible, there are multiple people that repent, but you see David in the Old Testament. David sins with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with that story, you can read it in 2 Samuel. And what ends up happening is, though David's the king, he can basically do whatever he wants, he thinks. And so instead of going out to war like he should, like most kings do, he stays at home. Idle hands are not a productive situation. You know that from your own experiences, I'm sure. And so he sees a woman who's not his wife. He starts to lust after this woman. So it begins there. And then he commits adultery with this woman. And now he's hooked. And James tells us about the cycle of sin 
And we've all been on it before. Maybe you don't recognize it, but what ends up happening is that sin leads to more sin until sin gets dealt with. And so he looks at this woman, it starts in his mind, and then he commits adultery with this woman, and then he wants to cover it up. So he lies about it, and the cycle starts to go, and it starts to crank, and it becomes more intensified. And his self-preservation is so important to him and his pride. So not only do we have lust, we've got pride, and now we've got his self-preservation that he actually murders a man. Now, most of us probably haven't gone that far. Some of you may have. But how many people will, to keep the image up, keep the reputation, got to get suppressed, keep it down, that's an enemy's tool. That's not God's tool. But then he gets confronted by a friend, Nathan. Stop. Do you realize what you've done? Do you realize you're the guy in the story that I just told you that you're so angry at? Do you see this? And he repents. And then Psalm 51 tells us really a glimpse of what happens inside of David. Psalm 51 says this. It's David crying out after his repentance. Create in me a pure heart, O God. So do a work only you can do, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Keep me faithful. Keep me focused on you. Do not cast from me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And verse 12, restore to me the joy, the very thing that I thought I was going to get from that body that Bathsheba had. I want to get from you. Give me the joy that was then taken away because of sin. He's still in relationship with God, but the communion's been broken. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation that I had the very moment I first trusted you. And grant, and so God gives us the gift of repentance. It's not a work. It's actually an act of grace. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 says he gives us repentance. Grant to me a willing spirit. You've got to get, I don't even want to on my own. I need you to change my heart and sustain me. Keep me there. I need you to keep me. I can't white knuckle this. I can't do it on my own. I won't. It's not just changing my mind. It's not just stopping. It's not just feeling bad. See, my, my bones are wasting. I felt terrible in my sin because I didn't have you and the joy was being sucked out of my life. And now I want you and I want you to restore the joy because you have to do an inward miracle that only you can do and it starts with repentance. It's a miracle. We can get used to seeing it though. And I think that happens to us sometimes at Southbridge. You've been around here for eight years. We see lots of miracles. We've seen people healed from diseases. We've seen people set free from bondage. You have people come up here to share testimony, sometimes broken addiction of pornography. They're cheating on their spouse. They couldn't tell anybody. They told somebody, now they're walking in freedom. You get people that come up here with broken addictions from alcohol and drugs, and it's like, yeah, yeah, God did it again. What does God want to do in you? We see people trust Christ, and I'll say, oh, we had somebody trust Christ last week. Three people trusted Christ a couple weeks ago. Forty people trusted Christ one time. Yeah, that's what happens. All of heaven rejoices when that happens. It shouldn't just be normal for us. We should, every time we hear about someone trusting Christ, our hearts should be welled up. We should clap, cheer, whatever you decide to do at that moment. But all of heaven rejoices. One sinner does what? That's right. If you don't know the verse that just got mentioned there, let me read a couple to you. Luke chapter 15, Jesus is teaching some really religious people some stuff about lost, lostness. And he says this in verse 5, chapter 15, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He gives another analogy that teaches the same lesson about the wonderfulness of finding a lost person. And then he says this in verse 10, in the same way, red letters, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Some of you need to repent. So you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today. You've been going your own way. You've been doing your own thing. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you know some stuff from the Bible. But you need Christ. If you've never repented, forgiveness of sins is not possible for you. Repentance is required for entrance into the kingdom. You don't think that's true? What does Peter preach in Acts chapter 2 that starts the whole church? Peter's preaching to a group of Jews, by the way. Here's the problem for the Jews. The Jews thought that you got into the kingdom because you were a son of Abraham, that you were born culturally into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus comes and says, no, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I don't like that. 
And we're all children of Abraham. Jesus says, I can make children of Abraham out of stones. Like, you're nothing special just because you were born ethnically a Jew. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about clothes you wear. It's not about the speech you have. It's not about the language you speak. You've got to repent. And so Peter stands up in front of a bunch of Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And he says, the Messiah came, you nailed him to a tree. That's the worst way you could die as a Jew. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And God works in their hearts while Peter's preaching to them and telling them how they killed the Messiah. And so they cry out, what do we do? And Peter says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter replied, first word, interesting, repent and be baptized, a sign of your repentance, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no exceptions for forgiveness of your sins. Without repentance, forgiveness is not possible. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be in the kingdom. And you'll have this gift, the spirit of the king in you. And see, repentance is so important. Not only is he beginning the kingdom for that. Do you know why Jesus is already and not yet? And there's a not yet part. It hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't come back. Because he's waiting for us to repent. He's not willing that any would perish. That's eternal damnation and hell. And you, don't, you can say, I don't believe in hell. That's fine. It doesn't change that it exists. Your thoughts about something don't change reality. I had a conversation with a guy yesterday, Jehovah's Witness, came to our door. And I believe in hell. Doesn't mean he's not going there. He's on his way there. He's got false teachers that are telling him that hell doesn't exist, and they're leading him there. And Peter says it like this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance is key. If you need to repent, don't wait for me to finish preaching. Repent. You can come down here, down front. I'll keep preaching. Why somebody come talk to you? You want to print? You come down here. You want to stay in your seat? Stay in your seat. Turn to God. Acknowledge your sin. If he's poking around in your heart, he's stirring your head. This needs to be dealt with. That needs to be dealt with. You need me. Then turn to him. Turn to him right now. Because repentance is required for entrance into the kingdom of believers. Hear this. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance in the life of a growing follower of Jesus Christ is a reoccurring event. Repentance is a regular thing in the life of a growing Christian. So repentance is not just a one-time thing. Repentance is a regular part of a growing Christian's life. I'm a friend in Louisville, Kentucky. It's part of a seminary that I'm doing some work at right now, and he's got a mission statement for his family. He challenged me to have a mission statement for my family. We do. Um, so our family, as the six of us, in addition to having the church mission statement, we've got a version of connecting people to Jesus for life change that we use for our family that's unique to us. And I challenge you to consider doing that. His is really cool. His actually says in it that there are a group of unique individuals that race to repentance. So it's not a group of individuals that repented once. It's every time we start to go away from God, every time we sin against each other or do some kind of sin, it's actually an offense against God. We're opposing him, so we need to, we need to run to it. As soon as we realize, as soon as God's probed in our hearts that there is a problem, we race to repent, and it happens repeatedly. Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks says it like this. Put this quote up on the screen. The work of repentance is not the work of an hour, a day, a year, but the work of this life. The repentant Christian soul never ceases repenting till he ceases living. Repentance is a regular, reoccurring thing in the life of the believer. He began a good work in you at the moment of repentance, and he's continuing to do that work. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, our last series, until Jesus comes back or you die. And in the meantime, you continue to repent. Here's how it looks. You repent of your sin and you trust that Jesus is your Savior. And then he continues to work on you and make you more and more like Jesus. And so you really meant it when you said, I want you to be Lord, you're king, you're in charge. But then it's like he says, now I'd like you to give me your attitude. 
And we work on your attitude for a little bit, and you turn your attitude over to Jesus. And he says, and now I want you to give me your thought life. And he works on your thought life. And now I want you to give me your wallet. And now I want you to give me your pride. And now I want you to give me your time. And now I want you to give me this skill, this ability. And it's interesting, we actually see it in the Bible. Ancient writers oftentimes would write a truth and then follow it with a narrative, a story, an illustration. What's interesting about Matthew chapter 4 is that most people know the story and they don't know the truth that's being taught. The truth that's being taught is Jesus preaching repentance. But let me read you the verses that come right after this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net. So Simon's name's already been changed to Peter. That's interesting to notice. They were casting a net into the lake because they were fishers of men. They were fishermen, I mean. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. A play on that word. At once they left their nets and followed him. Most of us, that's what we know of the story. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets, and so they're fishermen as well. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. A radical renunciation of what they were a part of and then coming and following him. So the word repent's not used, it's illustrated here. And it's illustrated by their turning, and they're turning over their ambitions, turning over their career, turning over all those things to follow Jesus. The way this story is usually told is like these guys were working in their boats. They'd never seen or heard of Jesus before. Jesus shows up and says, come follow me. And they go, meh, sounds like a good idea. There's a gap, chronological gap, and it's not a problem in the Bible. It's just the way that Matthew wasn't trying to point out all the ministry that took place before this, the ministry in Nazareth that John records in John chapter 1 through John chapter 3 and verse 36 that's not recorded between Matthew chapter 4 verse 11 and Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 that we started reading. After the temptation of Jesus, he has a year of ministry that's not recorded in Matthew. This wasn't part of what Matthew was trying to get across to his audience. And what happens in that time frame is that Peter and Andrew and James and John become disciples. They're already followers of Jesus in this passage. They've already entered the kingdom. Now he's calling for a new area of their life to be surrendered. You're in the kingdom. Now I want you to surrender your ambitions, your career, and come follow me so that you can advance the kingdom. It's time to take the next step, Peter. Time to take the next step, John. Time to take the next step, James. Because repentance is a regular reoccurring event in the life of the believer. And so what does God want you to repent of? Interesting, too, that Jesus is, a lot of the things that we think and we get this overly sentimentalized version of him come from truths about him. He is a friend of sinners. How is Jesus a friend of sinners and calls for repentance? Most of us don't think that's possible. How can we tell somebody what they're doing is wrong and be their friend? Jesus came to heal the sick, so he can save the lost. He does all this ministry that points to the Father and reveals the Father so they can come to redeem a relationship with him. You know how most believers spend their lives? Hanging out with the found and placating to the sick. If all of your friends are Christians, you have a problem. If all of your friends are not Christians, or a good percentage of your friends are not Christians, and they don't know they're on their way to hell, you have a problem. You're not their friends. You might think you're friends because you hang out and you talk and you laugh. Awesome. If you and I uh, have a relationship of some sort and I'm doing something that's killing me and you don't tell me, you are not my friend. Because we can't even be honest with each other. That's not a friendship. That's an acquaintance. That's not a friendship. Jesus is a friend of sinners and sinners flock to him. Do you know why? Because what he's offering them is better than what they have. So it's okay for him to say to the adulterous woman, stop sinning, go and sin no more. Hey, the man you're with now, that's not your husband. He can call out their sin, call them to repentance. You know why? Because he says, hey, you're thirsty. I give water. You'll never thirst again. Me. You're hungry. I am the bread of life. 
You're bankrupt. You need some money. Guess what? I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So what you're going after and you think you're going to get from this well, or you think you're going to get from me feeding you a meal, 5,000 people, or you think you're going to get because you've got a little bit of money in your bank account, you think that it's going to happen from that? No, I deliver that. I'm offering something better. So you can turn from that and come to me, and I'll change your desire. The longing, it won't be fulfilled there. So come to me. The sinners flock to him because they realize he's offering something nobody else is offering himself. Real life. You're blind? I'm the light of the world. What do you think all those analogies actually show us? Jesus is enough. Satisfaction comes from Jesus. And so the problem for most of us is this. It's not that we don't want to tell somebody the truth. It's not any of that. It's we don't believe the truth. We don't think that Jesus is better than our sin. We don't live like the people in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham leaves everything, never gets the promised land because he's living for a place that's not here. Moses leaves a palace to go lead a bunch of people that are slaves wandering around in the wilderness. That doesn't sound like a very good deal. You drop your nets, fishermen. Come follow me. Well, the fishing's a pretty good business. You make more money than the average person as a fisherman. Not as much as a tax collector, but more money than a peasant. Nah, I'm good, Jesus. I got a good job. I'm already in the kingdom. Thanks. How would the gospels be different if that had been the response? Well, how about you come follow me and get crucified upside down, get boiled in water, and die? Oh, following you is better. Because I believe that you're better. What do you need to repent of? Let's pray. Father, probe our hearts. Change our lives. Don't let these just be words that we hear. Please work in us and make us like you. Meet us in these moments right now as we talk to you. Change us, God. We repent. We turn to you. We repent as a country for forsaking you. We repent as a church for times we make it about things other than you. And we repent as individuals for all the individual stuff we need to repent for. I pray, God, that you'd work in our hearts right now. Each and each person needs to hear these words. You just convict us, confront us, change us, turn us, turn us to you. If you need to begin a relationship with Jesus, turn to him. He's working in your heart. Turn to him right now. Repent of your sin. Turn to him. Ask for that forgiveness that you cannot earn on your own that you need from the cross.